If you take your pew Bibles in front of you, or if you're following along in your own Bible, it's Matthew 13, verses 44 through 52, and in the pew Bible, that's page 969. The parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then, in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went, to, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things, Jesus asked? Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. This is God's word. Well, it is hard to believe that the uh, the Christmas season is already upon us. I spent uh, Black Friday doing our annual tradition, not standing in line, but wrestling with our cheap plastic Christmas tree, trying to get the thing to stand up without falling over. The uh, with the added challenge this year of a one-year-old intent on bringing the thing down. Uh, so far, we've managed to make a barricade of furniture around it that has kept her out all but one time, and it has gone over only once, so that's that's victory in my book so far, but uh, we all have our Christmas traditions. It's a it's a it's an exciting time of the year, but as it's at its heart, we know that Christmas is a celebration of the arrival of Israel's long-awaited King, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the whole world, and with the arrival of our king comes the dawn of God's kingdom. We've been studying and learning more about the kingdom of God the last few weeks as we've been in Matthew 13 and the parables of the kingdom. Jesus has been using short stories and metaphors and sayings to reveal to his followers the secrets 
of his kingdom, helping correct some of their expectations about what it would be like when God's kingdom came on earth, while at the same time concealing those secrets from those on the outside who stand against his kingdom. He's been using parables because they help him do both of those at the same time. And this morning we come to the last four parables in chapter 13, which emphasize the value of the kingdom and what it's, what's at stake in missing out on it, but then also conclude by reminding us of our call to make God's kingdom known. But the idea of the kingdom of God, that phrase, that idea, is rather confusing for many. Uh, when the Bible talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, and those two terms are used synonymously in the Gospels, sometimes we see it use the phrase kingdom of heaven, sometimes kingdom of God, they're interchangeable in the way that the authors uh, and, and the way that Jesus even uses them. But, but when that phrase is used, what is it talking about? What is the kingdom of God? Uh, one pastor and author asks the question, what is the kingdom exactly? Is it a realm, a piece of real estate that God has special authority over? Is it the church? Is it here now or is it something we're waiting for? Something that will come in the future? For that matter, who exactly is in the kingdom of God? Doesn't God's rule extend over everyone regardless of whether he or she believes in Jesus? So when we're talking about the kingdom of God, what are we talking about? As we prepare to look at these final four parables in this chapter, I want to start with that question. What does the Bible mean by the phrase kingdom of God? We need to know what it's talking about because as we're going to see in these parables, there is no greater treasure than to be included in that kingdom and there's no greater terror than to miss out on it. So we need to know what is this kingdom and why is it so incredible. So let's pray as we look at this passage together. Lord, it is your voice we want to hear this morning. It's your kingdom that we want to see What is it? What's it about? Who is it that belongs to it? and How do we take hold of it? And so, Lord, we need your spirit to be with us. We need your spirit to open our eyes to see you. We need your spirit to open our ears to hear your voice. We need your spirit to ready our hearts to be changed by the truth of your gospel, the truth that we're going to read and see this morning in your word. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd be with us and that you would change us and that you would be honored by us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The kingdom of heaven is one of the central themes in the Gospel of Matthew. By now, I I, I didn't go back and count how many times we've seen it used so far, but it's used 55 times in this entire book. It's a major theme of Matthew's Gospel, and even of all four Gospels, and arguably, I think quite well arguably, of the entire Bible. That God reigns is a major message of the Scriptures. There is no greater treasure than to be included in that kingdom, and no greater terror than to miss out on it. So, again, what is the kingdom of heaven? Now, most of us, when we hear that word, we're probably thinking geography. We're thinking, you know, Uh, a realm over which a king rules, kind of like we see in the medieval times or or even in the fairy tales that the the knights and and 
castles and such and so on. Uh, in that context, a kingdom is a realm. It's the area over which a king exercises his authority. That's what comes to most of our minds. But in the Bible, the kingdom of God has less to do with geography and more to do with God's activity. So it's not talking so much about the area over which he rules, but his rule itself, his rule and reign, or his kingship, if you will. So when you see kingdom, think kingship, God's rule and reign, the royal reign of God. If we were to uh, use a loose analogy with our government structure today, which is not a monarchy and so on, but if we were to use a loose analogy, it's the difference between the land we call America, that's a realm, and the actions of our president, that's a reign. It's what he does. The kingdom of God is emphasizing and referring to the latter of those two. It's talking about God's rule and reign, what he does to exercise his authority, his power, his presence to rule and accomplish his redemptive purposes on the earth. That reign is sometimes associated with special places. So you think of the Garden of Eden or you think of uh, the promised land of Canaan or the city of Jerusalem. Sometimes that reign is, a, is associated with special places, but it extends over the entire universe. There's no square inch of creation that does not fall under God's authority and reign. His reign, however, is not universally recognized. So God rules in fact, but that rule is not recognized by all. In fact, the mark of a fallen world is rebellion against God's kingdom. To, to throw off, the, it's, it's to fail to recognize and submit to God's rule over our lives. And so when the Bible speaks of the coming of God's kingdom, it's not talking about taking more territory. It's talking about the final establishment of God's rule and reign over all the earth. The universal recognition that God really is king. That the Lord truly does reign. And according to the Gospel of Matthew, that kingdom, that recognition of his reign, that God's presence and power to begin exercising his authority as is true, that kingdom has dawned with the advent of Jesus Christ. The new day that Israel was looking forward to, the day when God would act decisively to establish his authority, his power, his presence to rule his people and accomplish his plan of redemption. According to Matthew, the kingdom of God is at hand because the king is at hand, King Jesus. When the king shows up, the kingdom is beginning to dawn. But as we saw last week when we were looking at uh, the parable of the wheat and the weeds and, and, and a couple others, we saw that there's an already and a not yet aspect to the reign of God over this earth. Israel was expecting, and even Jesus' disciples were expecting the kingdom of God to come in a big, loud, and victorious way. They were thinking, you know, massive uh, showing up, slaying the enemies, uh, claim, vindicating God's people, uh, judging his enemies. And they were thinking that's going to happen 
in a big, loud, and victorious way when God's kingdom finally comes. They didn't yet understand that Jesus would accomplish his rule and establish his kingdom, not through power and force, but through his death on the cross. And they didn't understand that God was going to establish that kingdom in two phases. Again, as we saw last week, that that victory would wait until the end. There would be a victory. The final overthrow of Satan, the, the undoing of sin and death, the universal recognition of God's glory and authority as king, every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, that will come in the end. But even with his first coming... Jesus is already beginning to reign in the meantime. So the victory waits, but the kingdom has already begun. It's already been inaugurated. The kingdom already exists where knees and hearts bow to the king and submit to him. It's already possible to enter into the kingdom of heaven by turning away from sin and turning toward Jesus in faith and repentance. It's the And those who belong to the kingdom already enjoy God's presence in a special way. We look forward to that presence in in a complete way in the end, but we already enjoy his presence in a special way now through the Holy Spirit who dwells within God's people. And it's that same spirit who enables God's people to joyfully obey their king, to live a kingdom lifestyle. If we think back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, what does it look like to be to live as a member of God's kingdom? What makes that possible is the spirit of God living within his children, within the subjects of his kingdom. We already have eternal life with God. Even as we look forward to, you know, with hope to our future inheritance, the kingdom of God is already present because Jesus has already come and the spirit is already at work even though we're still waiting for the completion when the Lord returns. There's an already and a not yet aspect to God's kingdom. And according to Jesus, there is no greater treasure on earth than to be included in that kingdom. There's no greater treasure to surrender to him, to belong to him, to to be ruled and cared for by the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth and who lovingly laid his life down for our sake. And that's what the first two parables tell us about this morning, that Jesus wants us to be satisfied in him and in his kingdom. There's no greater treasure. So look with me at Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. We have two parables here with one message. One making the same point. There's nothing more valuable to lay hold of than the kingdom of God, even if it costs you everything you have. The first parable describes the value of the kingdom by comparing it to finding a treasure hidden in a field. 
when you don't have banks and such to, to safe deposit your money back in that day, you buried it. That's what you did. Uh, and, and so the, the picture here is a, a guy coming along, maybe plowing or doing something, and then he discovers this treasure and how amazing it is, and he covers it up, and he goes and, and, and sells all that he has so he can buy the field and have rightful claim to that treasure. Now, the lawyers in the room right now are right now doing the calculation of whether or not he actually would have the right to that or, you know, since he found it before he owned the field and so on. That's not the point of the story. Uh, the point is that what he found was so incomparably valuable that if having it meant losing everything else, he would joyfully pay that price. He would gladly do it. And that's the same thing with the second illustration. The merchant finding a pearl of such supreme value, he gladly sold everything else he owned in order to have it. There is no greater treasure than to be included in God's kingdom, even if it costs you everything that you have. And in fact, unless you say no to all other kingdoms, you cannot take hold of this one. To gain the kingdom, the people in both parables had to lose everything else. So the kingdom of God is not like one fancy pearl that that you can just kind of string along and add next to all sorts of other pearls, other saviors, other allegiances, other hopes, other kingdoms. To take this one pearl, you have to say no to every other pearl, every would-be kingdom, every would-be savior. But once you've tasted the goodness, once you've seen the value and really tasted the goodness of this kingdom, of life under God's rule and God's care, it's hard to be satisfied with anything else. Pastor and author Jared Wilson, uh, who serves in Vermont, illustrates this point well, I think. He writes, when I moved to Vermont, I heard a lot about the maple syrup here. I thought I had had maple syrup before. It turns out I had only engaged in a corn syrup masquerade. Aunt Jemima, Mrs. Butterworth, and the like, all shams. Those probably aren't even their real names. It wasn't until I actually tasted 100% pure, dark, amber Vermont maple syrup that I saw what I had only heard about before. And now... I will not have any other kind of syrup. I will not go back. I have tasted the goodness and lost my taste for the pale imitations. And and that's, I think, a picture of what it is to really taste the beauty and, and the value and the significance of belonging to God, coming under his rule as his child, being included in God's kingdom. The goodness of Jesus and his gospel All other would-be kingdoms pale in cheap comparison to knowing and serving the true king. But if you think about it, so, so what is the actual benefit? What is the value? What does God accomplish through his redemptive rule? What's so incredible about this treasure that, that we don't want to miss out on it? Let's think about, you know, if you just think back through the Gospel of Matthew so far, what are some of the, quote, member benefits of belonging to the kingdom of God? First, those who recognize Jesus as king and 
come to him in faith and repentance, receive the forgiveness of sins. It's the first benefit I want us to think about. Matthew 1 told us that Jesus came to save his people from their sin. And in chapter 9, he showed us how he has divine authority to forgive sins. That's something only God can do. And Jesus, in establishing God's kingdom as God in the flesh, has the authority to do that for his people. So the first benefit of entering into the kingdom is that your greatest problem has been decisively dealt with. Okay? The problem that has plagued humanity throughout all human history that wreaks havoc on our lives and our relationships, the selfishness, the greed, the lies that we tell, everything ungodly about us, Jesus deals with it. And he deals with it by giving his own life in our place. Second, being part of God's kingdom means that God is not only our king, but also our father. He's not just our king, he's also our father. It is those who belong to the kingdom that can pray with Jesus, our father in heaven, hallowed be our name. Just think the, the benefit of being able to refer to God along with Jesus as our Father. To be adopted into the family of God. We who were once enemies and rebels against God's kingdom, he's adopted us into his family through Jesus. He's rescued us from the dungeon and he's given us a place at the family table. If we're part of God's kingdom, we're not merely subjects. We are sons and daughters. Sons and daughters of the king. And the love that he has for his eternal son is now the same love that he has for us. When he looks at us, he sees his son. He sees those who've been included, who've been united with Jesus, who have been adopted into his family And that's a love that's far stronger than anything we can imagine. And Jesus says in Matthew 7, If then, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I mean, we pride ourselves on our creativity at Christmas time and how we're going to show our kids how much we love them. Uh, Maybe a little excessive at times and so on, but... Uh, we, we, that's how we show that we love them, by, by the gifts that we give. We, with evil hearts, are able to give good gifts to our kids. How much more does our Heavenly Father, with a perfect, pure heart, know how to give good gifts to His children? It's a love beyond anything we can imagine. So we, we have forgiveness of sins. We're adopted into God's family. Third, members of God's kingdom have security and significance. We spend so much of our lives chasing things that we think are going to satisfy and fulfill us. Or worrying about whether life is going to turn out the way we want it to go. And, you know, whether it's it's getting onto the road and finding that the traffic is not going to allow you to get your kids to school on time again. And and somehow this is all their fault and not mine. Uh, or, Or whether it's, you know, just little things that will go wrong in your day that just set you off. We're clamoring for a sense of control. We're clamoring for a sense of security 
and significance because we measure our identity based on how well we pull these things off. And the reality is the only true security and significance to be had comes from Jesus. Jesus says to his people, so do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. So our security in life is not dependent on our situation, but on the strength of our king. Our identity does not come from what we do or what we wear or what we have or what other people do to us. It comes from our union with King Jesus, which frees us to seek not our own kingdoms, but his kingdom. To seek his purposes. To be the light of the world he calls us to be. To make disciples of all nations. To bring glory and honor to him. And the list can go on. But just one more. Members of God's kingdom have hope. Members of God's kingdom have hope. We all know that this world does not work the way it's supposed to. God's kingdom has begun, but it's not yet complete. But if we belong to that kingdom, then we have hope that this will end well. We have hope. There is a victory in the end. There is an inheritance waiting for the children of God. The harvest will come and the righteous in Christ will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. We have hope. There truly is no greater treasure than to be included in God's kingdom, to know Jesus and to lovingly serve him. And once you've tasted, truly had your eyes open to the value of life under his care, under his rule, the forgiveness of sin, the relationship with the Father, significance, purpose, hope. It's hard to be satisfied with anything else. But not everybody enters into or enjoys the kingdom of God. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the next parable warns us that there's no greater terror than to miss out on God's kingdom. To beware of missing out on his kingdom. So verse 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets but threw away the bad. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous, and throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The picture uh, in the parable there—it's uh, a fishing method that, you know, I'm not much of a fisherman. Period. But even, you know, the little I know about it, I had to look up what in the world this whole dragnet business was talking about here. But it's—it's it's a picture of of the kind of net that had weights on one side so it would sink to the bottom of the lake and then floater-type things, cork or wood, on the other side so that that side would float. And it would be dragged between either two boats 
or anchored on one side of the shore and kind of swung out by a boat in a semicircle. So just like a wall, literally dragged across the sea, collecting everything in its path. And so then you had to sit down at the end of the day and go through it and sort it all out. And and any fish that were inedible or unclean had to be discarded and you kept the good stuff. So that's the, the picture here. In the same way, God's rule and reign is expansive. It's exhaustive. Everybody is included under his rule and reign. But not everybody will enter in to the redemption that comes from his reign. He has authority over everyone, but not everyone recognizes him as king. And when Jesus explains the meaning of this parable in verses 49 and 50, that's the point he's emphasizing, which is very similar to the parable of the wheat and the weeds uh, that we looked at last week, that some will face judgment for rejecting Jesus as king. In the end, God's messengers will sort out the evil from the righteous and the evil will be judged in a terrifying way. It's described as a fiery furnace with ongoing suffering and anguish. There is no greater terror than to miss out on God's kingdom. That reality should give everyone here pause. To, to wrestle with, with what he's saying here. It ought to warn us if we don't know Jesus as Savior. If we've been keeping him at arm's length or, or clinging to other would-be saviors, other things that we think are going to get us in right with God or think that are, are going to give us significance in life. To reject Jesus is to commit treason against heaven. To reject Jesus is to commit treason against heaven. And it's punishable by eternal death. And that reality ought to humble those of us who do know Jesus as king. But for the grace of God, there go I. There's nothing in and of myself or nothing in and of you that that makes us worthy before God by ourselves. We are sinners to the core entirely dependent on the grace of God. As Paul says to all of us in Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, reference to to Satan there, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature not children of God, but children of wrath, deserving of God's holy judgment against our sin, like the rest of mankind. That's what we bring to the equation. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Salvation, to to be forgiven of our sins, adopted into God's family, to inherit the kingdom and, and not face eternal punishment. That is all of grace and only by grace being given something wonderful, even though we deserved something terrible. 
And we receive that blessing through faith in Jesus by turning away from sin and trusting our lives to Jesus as our King and Savior. To become a member of God's kingdom is not like walking into BJ's and going up to customer service and, and buying a membership card. You know, it, It's not that kind of deal. It's not something you can buy or earn by being good enough or by keeping the law. You enter the kingdom by faith in Jesus Christ who paid the way for you. And he's the only one because of his perfect life and because of his substitutionary death on the cross. He's the only one qualified to pay your way. You can't do it. But the good news is you don't have to because Jesus has done it. As Paul continues, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That's what Jesus asks of us, to trust him and follow him. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we're not saved by being good enough. We're not saved by our works. But that doesn't mean that obedience doesn't matter. God saves us so that we can be faithful subjects of his kingdom so that we can live and follow him and reflect him in our lives but it comes through faith and without faith in christ we remain under judgment and that reality ought to humble us and ought to break our hearts for the countless people who do not yet recognize jesus as king or savior and who for that reason are facing a christless eternity in hell it ought to motivate us to make the love and the mercy and the grace of jesus known and that's what the last parable emphasizes our call to be faithful to make god's kingdom known the parable of the new and old treasures so look at that with me in verse 51 Have you understood all these things, Jesus asked? Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Now, I don't know what you think, but to me this parable is pretty much the most obscure one in the entire chapter. Um, for lots of reasons. One, did the disciples really understand everything he'd been saying? I mean, we kind of have our doubts later on. They seem to be missing a few things. Um, why does he call them scribes or, or teachers of the law here? Those are usually the bad guys in Matthew. Uh, and, and what are the new and the old treasures? Well, I think this final parable really summarizes the entire chapter in a lot of ways. And maybe even the book so far. Jesus has been revealing to his disciples what he calls the secrets of the kingdom in verse 13 or the things hidden since the creation of the world in verse 35. God's kingdom does not come out of nowhere. It was planned and promised a long time ago before the creation of the world. It's been talked about throughout the entire 
Old Testament. There's something old about it. But it's the new work that Jesus is doing that brings those old promises to completion. And that's been the message of the entire gospel so far, that that what God planned in the beginning, what he promised through his prophets, he's now bringing to completion through his eternal son, Jesus, the true king of heaven and earth. The scribes of the Pharisees, the scribes we've met earlier in Matthew's gospel, they were able to bring out of the treasury only what was old, the law and the prophets. Only those who've been instructed or discipled for the kingdom by Jesus, who've learned the secrets he's been revealing here, are able to bring out both the old and the new together. The Old Testament promises as they're fulfilled in the new work of Jesus. And now that they've been instructed to connect the dots between old and new, to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of the kingdom, now they have a job to do. They are to become like a new kind of scribe. They are to be teachers who announce to all that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ. Which is another way of saying what he says to them at the end of the gospel, in chapter 28. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. As Jesus has made himself known, the special new thing he's doing to fulfill the old promises, he's given his disciples a job to do in making that kingdom known. And so it is for us. For everyone who calls on Jesus as king, we have a job to do, to make his kingdom known. It's not our job to establish God's kingdom or even to build or or usher in or expand God's kingdom. Those are not the words that the New Testament uses or even the old to describe the role that we play. Those are things God does. Our job, God invites us to enter into the kingdom by faith. That's something we do to possess it as his people, to someday inherit it with all the promises and blessings, and in the meantime, to proclaim it, to bear witness to it, to announce to the world that there's only one king of heaven and earth, there's only one kingdom that will reign in the end, that there's no greater treasure than belonging to that kingdom and no greater terror than to miss out on it. As we celebrate the Advent season, we are going to spend the next three weeks bringing out of the treasury both the new and the old. We're going to look back at the Old Testament promises, some Old Testament promises of the kingdom through the new lenses that Jesus gives us to see how his Advent is the solution to all the old problems and the answer to all the old promises and still is the solution and the answer today. And so next Sunday, we're going to look at the king that God promises in Genesis 17, which is incredible to think about. There you are in just the first few chapters of the Bible, and they're already looking forward to the advent of Jesus. And then 
The next week after that, we'll look at the king of whom God approves in Deuteronomy 17, how, how God's king must fulfill God's law. How Jesus is the only one who ever really does that. Then on the 22nd, we'll consider the king whom God will establish. We'll look at the promise, the covenant God made with David in 2 Samuel 7. And finally, on Christmas Eve, we will worship the king of kings from Matthew 2. It is an exciting season to dwell on and think about who our king is, what he's done to claim this world as his own and to exercise his authority to rescue us and bring us to himself. And that's what we're going to celebrate. The kingdom of heaven is at hand because the king has come. And there's no greater treasure than to be included in his kingdom and no greater terror than to miss out. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you sink that truth deep into our heart? Lord, we confess that when we think about your kingdom, uh, when we think about what it means to live under your rule, under your care, we often find the other pearls in this world a little bit more attractive. We often want to simply string your kingdom alongside the rest of them to keep one foot in this world and the other in your kingdom. Lord, we confess that we do it out of our selfishness. We do it out of our ignorance. And we need you to show us both our sin, but also the satisfaction that comes only from living under your rule and care. God, give us eyes to see your kingdom for what it truly is, to no longer settle for the cheap imitations of this world, but to savor the beauty and the significance and the satisfaction of living as your people in submission to your Son in joyful relationship and joyful service to you. Lord, give us the opportunity, the ability, move in our hearts to help us see and live that way. We need it. And Lord, we pray that we would um, ourselves be faithful to make your kingdom known, that as we experience, as we taste and see the Lord Jesus and how he is the fulfillment of all your promises, Lord, that we would make that known to our friends and family. And what a great opportunity the Christmas, Christmas season gets us, gives us for that. It's, it's the one time of the year when lots of people are talking about Jesus. Lord, may we make the most of that opportunity to bear witness to your kingdom. May we celebrate with anticipation, the anticipation of Advent, what you will do in the dawning, the Uh, the growth and the spread of your reign over this world. And Lord, as we think and and enter into this Advent season, Lord, we're mindful that, that it's not always a joyful time of year for everyone, in that some of us are entering into our first holiday season without loved ones that we lost this year. So I pray, God, for your comfort and mercy on those. 
I pray, God, that you would remind us that this world's not the end of the story, that, that the first advent is not the only one, but that there is a second advent that we wait for when you will make all things new. And God, may our hearts long for that even as we celebrate your first coming. Lord, we pray um, for those who are serving on our behalf to make your kingdom known. For our missionaries, uh, we pray for all of the students who were able to attend the ISI Thanksgiving conference this week, for the, all of the host families that served them, Lord. We pray that whatever seeds were planted, that you would water and you would bring to fruition in faith and repentance and salvation uh, before you. Lord, would you raise up men and women to know you and love you and to make your name known around the nations, around the globe. And Lord, we pray for our own, uh, our own work here in this city, for our neighbors, Lord. Uh, we pray for the homeless this Christmas season, Lord. We think of um, Starlight Ministries and, and, and Brian Gearin's work uh, with Emmanuel Gospel Center and their ministry to the homeless in Boston. Lord, would you be with them? Would you provide what is needed, Lord, the shelter, the food? And would you provide for them the hope of Christ? Would you show yourself to them, Lord? Lord, you are the only thing worth trusting in. Your kingdom is the only one that will satisfy. May we treasure you above all else. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.